Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I'd invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. As we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. The NASB says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Please be seated. So as we continue our series, The Gospel of Luke, last time we ended at the end of Luke chapter 2. There we had a scene at the Passover at the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus was 12 years old. Now in Luke chapter 3, it is roughly speaking 18 years later. And what Luke chapter 3 verses 1 to 20 is going to detail is the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? He was a messenger. He was a herald. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist was the one who set the stage to pass the mic over to Jesus Christ. And how did John the Baptist do that? He prepared the people to meet Jesus. John the Baptist was a prophet, meaning he was God's reliable mouthpiece to the people. But in contrast to every other prophet, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Nahum, like Obadiah, all of the other prophets who lived hundreds of years prior, they looked hundreds of years into the future. And they said, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he's coming. But what John the Baptist did, the end of his ministry and the beginning of Jesus' ministry, they overlapped. So John the Baptist said, the Messiah, he's here. He's the man next to me. The Messiah is Jesus Christ. And when we look at extra-biblical sources of history, like the writings of Josephus, we find out that during the ministry of John the Baptist, he was famous. He was not only little f famous, he was capital F famous. If John the Baptist lived now, every morning the front page of the newspaper would say, this is what John the Baptist said yesterday. 
John the Baptist was famous because he was the prophet that broke 400 plus years of prophetic silence. Before John the Baptist began his ministry, the last prophet to speak for God was Malachi, roughly 425 years in the past. So when John the Baptist comes, the people now say, wait a minute, God hasn't forgotten about us. God has raised a prophet, and now the Lord is speaking to us again. And God allowed that prophetic silence to inflame the minds of the people and to increase their hunger, to increase their yearning. So when John began speaking the word of God, the people had a zealous appetite for the Lord's word. So that's the setup. That's the scene in which John the Baptist begins his ministry. Now, what does Luke begin saying in Luke chapter 3? He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. If Luke's only concern was to give us an accurate assessment of the date, if his only concern was to precisely narrow in on when all of these events happened in history, the only thing he would have to say is in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. But Luke gives us far more information than that. Why does he do that? Let's begin. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Who was Tiberius Caesar? He was the emperor of the Roman Empire. He was the second emperor after Augustus Caesar. He was a man who was brilliant, but he was also brutal. His administration was given over to drunkenness, to covetousness, and cruelty. In other words, when John the Baptist's ministry started, the most powerful man in the world was an unrepentant, unregenerate, pagan idolater. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, who was Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate was the man who had the nerve, who had the audacity to look Jesus Christ in the face, to look truth itself in the face, and say, what is truth? Pontius Pilate was the man who let a terrorist and a murderer go free, Barabbas. He let that guy go free so he could crucify God, so he could crucify Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate's administration was characterized by a perversion of justice, cruelty, and emperor worship. Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. Tetrarch means governor of the fourth. This Herod was the son of Herod the Great. And if you remember, Herod the Great was the one who gave the order to murder all Hebrew males under the age of two in an attempt to assassinate Jesus Christ. And this Herod had his father's blood running through his veins. And just when you thought this was a political tirade, the church was in a mess too. Luke says, in the high priesthood, singular, in the high priesthood, singular, of two high priests. According to Mosaic law, there was only supposed to be one high priest at a time. It was like being a Supreme Court. The only time you got a new high priest was when the old high priest died. So why were there two high priests? Because the church was confused. Annas was the original high priest. 
He got into a squabble with the Roman, so the Romans kicked him out. But Annas still had power over the temple. Annas used the church to make himself rich. Annas rigged the system so that if you were a faithful Jew and came to the temple and wanted to sacrifice an animal, the only animals you were allowed to use was an animal that you bought from Annas's market. And no surprise, all of those animals, the price was marked up far higher than market value. And Caiaphas was Annas's son-in-law. He was placed in the high priesthood by the Romans. So Luke is telling us not only were the politicians in disarray, but the politicians were picking and choosing who served in God's house. So what's the point of all this? Why is Luke giving us all of this detail? Luke is telling us That when John the Baptist came on the scene, the world was in chaos. There was double-mindedness. There was a lack of truth. Error substituted for what was right and what was moral. And the people were living in a wilderness of truth. It was an environment where justice was turned back, righteousness stood afar off, And truth had fallen in the streets. Politically speaking, the Jews were a conquered people living under the Romans. And spiritually, the people were subjected to a legalistic, tyrannical religion that was dominated by corrupt spiritual leaders. And the people were being taught that salvation is earned. That you had to work and get enough check marks on your God scorecard in order to make it to heaven. They were being taught that salvation is not God accomplished, that it's human achieved. Then comes John the Baptist. Then comes God's prophet. And what does John the Baptist do? He begins shaking things up. He, in the spirit of Elijah before him, he begins troubling things. He begins unsettling things. He begins taking a vial of water that has things that are well settled, and he takes it and he shakes it up. So things that were on the bottom is now on top. Things that were on the top are now at the bottom. He would have been called a troubler at the time. In other words, John the Baptist disrupted things the way they were. Because, beloved, we have to understand something. The truth only survives in an environment of confrontation. The reason why you and I are here is because Moses looked Pharaoh in the eye and said, let my people go. Because Elijah asked the people of Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? Because John the Baptist in the wilderness preached a message of repentance, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus looked at the religious authority figures of his day. And said, you are in fact wrong because I am God in the flesh. The truth can only survive in the environment of confrontation. And John the Baptist did just that. He confronted what was normal, what was considered the way things ought to be done of the day. And he disrupted all of that. So here's the first point. You prepared to meet Jesus. Then, number one, prepare to be disrupted. What does the text say? The word of God came to John. The term for word in Greek is rima, which means the precise, exact, just as God said it word. That came to John. And the word that came to John is what animated, is what gave content to his voice crying in the wilderness. As a prophet, John therefore lived by the mantra, 
As God says, so I shall speak. John the Baptist did not apologize for God's word. He didn't dumb it down. He didn't change language. He didn't try to make it more inclusive. Just as God said, as the Rima hit John, that's exactly what God spoke. God, John wasn't politically correct. John didn't worry what society would think. John didn't worry what they'd say about him in the marketplace because he relayed the Rima of God. And in order to meet God, in order to prepare to meet Jesus Christ, in order to experience the Word of God, you have to be disrupted from the ways of men. And the word of God came to John. It didn't come to Tiberius Caesar. It didn't come to Herod. It didn't come to the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John because God's word always finds those who are his. And that rima that came to John pointed the people to the true king, Jesus Christ. In the world at the time, the Roman worldview was pervasive. People thought whoever was the Roman emperor was God in the flesh. They thought the Roman emperor could rule by divine right, and it was normal to worship Caesar. And John the Baptist's message said, why would you ever have faith in, why would you ever worship a finite, corruptible human being who's going to die? He said, the word of God told me, you ought not to praise and worship a natural human being who's just a king. You must worship, adore, and trust in the king of kings who's the man right next to me, Jesus Christ. Because the last time I checked, Caesar is dead. Herod is dead. Pilate is dead. But Jesus Christ has risen. Are you prepared to meet Jesus and prepare to be disrupted? The Word of God actually even disrupted John. Who was John? The son of Zacharias. Who was Zacharias? He was the man we met in Luke chapter 1. He was a priest. He lived a nice, quiet existence, serving the temple. He didn't bother anybody. So based on biology, based on lineage, if John did exactly as he was expected to do, he would follow in daddy's footsteps, he would be a priest, not bother anybody, and not be a disruptor. But when the word of God hit John... It disrupted everything. It changed plans. It found John in the wilderness so that the man who may have been destined to be a priest was now called to be a prophet and a preacher of God's word. Now here's the practical application of all of this. When you prepare to meet Jesus, you must prepare to be disrupted. Because guess what? There is a system of worship in which you are never disrupted. The Bible calls that Baal worship. Baal worship is any, any object of worship that is not God, that is false, that is a human concoction, because Baal never wants to disrupt you. Baal always wants you to be comfortable. Baal wants you to remain in a religious safe space your entire life, never to be offended, never to be challenged, so you can happily and gleefully walk in one piece through the wide gate to eternal destruction. But when you meet the real God, you and I as finite human beings realize God is not the one who is going to change. We are the ones who are going to change when we are in the presence of omnipotence. God will never let his children settle for being comfortable or not disrupted if that deters you and takes you away from fellowship with him in paradise forever. 
God's word is disruptive. That is why it is still unwelcome today. God's word is disruptive and it contradicts the philosophy of the day. The world never wants to hear God's voice if it disrupts their world view. And let's make sure we're clear about something. God's word is disruptive, not for the sake of being disruptive. There are people in the world today who are loud for the sake of being loud, or they're brash for the sake of being brash. But God's word is disruptive for your benefit, for my benefit. Do you know who doesn't need God's word? God. God's word is revealed to us for our benefits. The disruption is a positive one to take us from a crooked path to a positive one. This is why, do you know what doesn't exist in the Bible? Small talk. Every word, every revelation, every comma, every period, every space for a paragraph is there, is profitable and edifiable for your spiritual Benefit, and that is purposely disruptive by design. So, are you prepared to meet Jesus? The number one, prepare to be disrupted. Point number two, are you prepared to meet Christ? Then prepare for some time in the wilderness. Then prepare for some time in the wilderness. Here's what the text says. Verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, when you and I, in the 21st century in the West, think of a wilderness, we think of a place that actually has life, like a lion there, a shrub there, a cactus there, creepy crawler there. When the Bible says wilderness... It refers to no life. It refers to a desert. It refers to a barren, rocky wasteland where there are no sources of natural substance. And the reason why God called his people out of the city of Jerusalem into the wilderness to hear the preaching of John the Baptist is because Whenever God prepares you to meet Jesus or whenever God prepares you into a deeper, more intimate relationship with himself, he always calls you out of something into something else, out of something into the wilderness where it's basically you and God. In Jerusalem at the time, the place where the people were called out from, that is where the Romans ruled. That's where you had the warped spiritual temple system. God called his people out of that, away from the legalism, away from the immorality, away from the pollution, away from the corruption, away from all of that mess, so the people could be purged and purified in the wilderness because guess what do you know what doesn't exist in the wilderness distractions all of those things that you think you need to live with all of those things that you think you can't live without they die in the wilderness so it's you and God Now you get to know in the wilderness what's really real and what's truly true. In the wilderness, there is no cell phone service. You can't text. There is no Wi-Fi that is wasting your time distracting you. It is you and it is your maker. And just so we make sure biblically we have the entire arc of the Bible story complete... In Exodus, God called his people out of Egypt into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they built a tabernacle, which was the intersection point between God and humankind. He drew them out of a place filled with corruption, immorality, and polytheism into the desert so they could meet him. What's happening now in Luke 3? 
pretty much the same thing. He calls his people out of Jerusalem, out of an area of idolatry, out of an area of immorality, into the desert. What are the, who are the people going to meet? In a, a couple of verses, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus, the intersection point between God and humankind because he is fully God and fully man in one person. So if you were a person living back then and you were a faithful Jew and you were smart, you would read what was going on and realize God is doing an exodus all over again. And you would now look back and realize you would get meaning and be able to interpret the present based upon what God had already done in the past. So in order to move forward, the people first had to look back and remember. Whenever God wants to bring you into a more mature relationship with himself... He always brings you through the wilderness, not around the wilderness. You don't get to skip. You don't get to fast forward to the next phase. It is always through the wilderness. When Joseph was thrown to the pit by his brothers and sold into Egyptian slavery, where was the pit? In the wilderness. When God revealed himself to Moses via the burning bush, that happened in the wilderness. When the prophet Elijah was miraculously fed by ravens by the book Cherith, that was in the wilderness. Where is Jesus going to be tempted in Luke chapter 4? In the wilderness. And when the man called Saul was on his way to kill Christians in the city of Damascus. On the road, he had a transformative experience where he met Jesus, and that portion of the road was in the wilderness. And where did Jesus' public ministry begin at the end of Luke chapter 3? Jesus finds his people and is baptized by the River Jordan in the wilderness. Now, here's a philosophical point. I want to make sure we get this. The true wilderness is wherever God is not. The true wilderness is wherever God is not. There's a difference between a natural wilderness like a desert where there's no natural sources of substance and a spiritual wilderness. A spiritual wilderness is the absence or the lack of presence of God himself. What's happening in our text? In the city of Jerusalem, roughly in the year 30 AD, when John the Baptist begins preaching, what are the people in Jerusalem getting ready to do? They're getting ready in the next three years to do what? Get rid of God. They're getting ready to kill him. They're getting ready to crucify Jesus. When Jesus came into the city, they said, we don't want you here. Get out. And they executed him. So God's will clearly wasn't being obeyed and done in the city of Jerusalem. So what does God do? God calls his people out of a spiritual wilderness, in a wilderness of truth, out of the city into the natural wilderness, the desert. But who meets the people in that natural wilderness? God does. Jesus is the one who meets all of his people in a natural wilderness, which reveals what? Although it was a natural desert, that's where God was. That's where God's presence was. So here is the practical point. You may be experiencing a situation now where you're in a natural wilderness, where there's a lack of resources, there's a lack of stuff, there's a lack of things around you. But beloved, realize something. The wilderness is the point. 
Being in that place of natural deficiency is the point because God always brings you through that wilderness in order to meet Him. You may not have things, you may not have stuff, you may not have a psychological reservoir, but the true wilderness is wherever God is not. In spite of all of that lack, what you still will always have is the presence of God. So are you prepared to meet Jesus? Then prepare for some time in the wilderness. Point number three. Are you prepared to meet Jesus? Then prepare for radical change. Prepare for radical change. This is what the disruption does. It actually is effectual and causes radical change. Verse 3 says... And he, John the Baptist, came into the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what the Bible says about itself. It doesn't say it's gentler than a wet piece of toilet paper. It doesn't say it's blunter than a wooden spoon. The Bible says it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And when that sword pierces you, when that sword hits you, it is effectual and it has the lasting effect of causing radical change. That word of God tells you that you have a spiritual cancer of sin lurking in your body and that sword hits you, it cuts it out, and you may leave that encounter in more pain than when you walked in. But that encounter induces a radical change that will never, ever leave you the same. In our text, John the Baptist, when we incorporate other verses from the other Gospels, say, John the Baptist looked the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the most religious people of the day, the people who were always in church, the people who on the outside you thought had everything together, He looked at them in the face and said, actually, you're not saved. Actually, you have nothing to do with Father Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. You are filthy. Now take a bath and get baptized. That is radical. John the Baptist said, the tradition of Judaism, which focused on external ceremonialism, he said that means nothing. Without deep-seated inward change, all of the external things you do have zero lasting value. So if you are prepared to meet Jesus Christ, that word, that rima, causes lasting, effectual change. Symbolically speaking, When we now, as believers in Christ, leave the world, we are now leaving a wilderness of truth. And when we step into the doors of God's house, in and amongst God's people, we are now leaving that wilderness of truth. And we're in and amongst what? Other radicals. Other people who have been transformed by the Word of God. And now in the body of Christ, our normal is regarded as radical to the world at large. The world at large regards us as weird, as strange, as radical. But in God's eyes, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. Because an encounter with Christ and an encounter with His Word induces effectual, radical change. And that radical change radically changes the way in which you see the world. Here's an example. The world says it's normal if you establish your entire identity based upon who you sleep with. The world says that's normal. The world says that's the way things are supposed to be. Here's how God radically changes things. God says every person is a human being made in his his likeness who has a spirit who has a soul, and he has a body. God now tells us something radically different. He says, why would you ever limit yourself and define who you are based upon who you sleep with? Why would you ever limit yourself and define your entire being based upon what you do in the privacy of 
your bedroom. People are more than that. I would never introduce myself and say, hi, I'm Elijah, I'm a heterosexual. This doesn't make any sense. There's so much more than that. You have thoughts, you have ideas, you have talents, you have gifts. You are an entire person, not isolated to one itty-bitty part of you that you only do with the flesh. But that's a radically new way of seeing things that only happens when you embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. Because here's an insight for you. Jesus Christ never had sex. Which means he never formed his identity based upon sexual relations. Radical. The world out there says... You are truly free based upon the number of options you have. If you can do as you please, you are now free. But here's now my question. If you are only free to die, then what is the point? Here's an evidence of radical change. I can stand here right now and say as a person whose skin is brown in the United States of America, I can boldly and confidently say, That Jesus Christ is my slave master. I am his slave. You may say, wait a minute, that's politically incorrect. That's radical. That's offensive. Actually, it's not. Because when you experience the radical change of Jesus Christ, being a slave to God means you are now really free. Means you now have royal freedom. So when Paul writes in Romans 1, when it's translated as, I am a bondservant, that's a bad translation. Paul says in Romans 1, I am a doulos. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And I am now so free. Every man, every woman in Jesus Christ is now so free. You can wake up every morning and say, how can I be a better, more obedient slave to my slave master, Jesus Christ? Because whom he sets free now is finally and fully free. Only a free person with can be bold and confident about being a slave. Radical change. Beloved, we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we radically different than the world around you, than the world around us? Because if meeting Jesus induces radical change, but your life, your worldview, the the way in which you go about everyday affairs is not radically different than the world around you, the next question is, have you really met Jesus? Do you have a real relationship with him? We have to look at the world around us and ask, is the world normal? Is racism normal? Are earthquakes that wipe out islands normal? Is genocide normal? Is sex trafficking normal? Is spousal abuse normal? It's not. The world is abnormal. Therefore, we can't rely on the world's prescriptions. We need something better. We need something genuine. We need something radical. And that something radical is the truth only found in God's word, which will tell you from the very beginning, the world in which we are living in is broken. It is fallen. It is not normal. And the only thing that will save us from that brokenness is Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist preached a radical message. And that radical message was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism was not just an outward sign. It was a baptism of repentance, meaning it was qualified by or animated by a deep-seated inward change. So a baptism that was not fueled by repentance was an outward sign that meant nothing. A baptism of repentance. Repentance means in the Bible, not just a change of mind, but a change of being. Because saving faith in the Bible is married 
to saving repentance. Saving repentance means you turn away from sin. Saving faith means you turn toward God. And to have the full 180 degree turn, you must not only have be repentant, but also have faith. Saving repentance and saving faith are married. Therefore, you can't have one without the other. And it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Because the Bible tells us time and time again that God does not forgive those who are unrepentant. For those who are repentant, God freely and graciously and never turns away someone with their broken and contrite heart. But he is under no obligation to forgive those who do not confess and repent. And John the Baptist, in preparing the people to meet Jesus did this baptism in order to, spiritually speaking, prepare the hearts and minds of the people. But guess what? Could the baptism cleanse them? Could the baptism purify them? The answer is no. Only Jesus could do that. So someone who earnestly heard John's message and realized they were a sinner in need of repentance, that led them to find someone who could forgive them, who could cleanse them, who could restore the broken relationship between them and God, and that was Jesus. The last three verses of Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, Luke quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before, looking forward to when John the Baptist would be on the scene. And he now writes these words in reference to John. And this is what Isaiah says. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Crying does not mean sobbing. Crying actually means an energetic howling as John was this energetic prophet crying in the wilderness, imploring the people to make the crooked path straight. And Luke quotes Isaiah and says, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Here's how we understand this verse. Back then in antiquity, there weren't highways. There wasn't no 111th Street. There was no I-95. There were no roads. So whenever a king, whenever a ruler would come into town, a herald would come first and say, Hey, everybody, the king is coming. Make ready the king's way. And now a crew of workmen would literally build a road. They would make a level path so when the king and his entourage came, the way in which they traveled would be smooth. They would remove debris. They would move obstacles so the way would be prepared for the king. And not only that, in preparing this road, would not only the king's travel be made easier, but all those who followed the king would have an easy path and an obstacle-less way to navigate. So in a spiritual sense, what John was imploring the people to do was to get their minds and hearts in a place ready to receive the coming Messiah. And Isaiah's prophecy says, make ready the way of the Lord. Make ready the way of Yahweh. Now let's think about this for a second. How can you make ready the way of the Lord unless God is coming? Unless God is actually going to be with us. Unless God is actually going to walk with us. How can, you, how can a human being 
ever make a way ready that is suitable for God. You can't. No human being can ever make a road, make a path, make a way that is suitable and sufficient for God himself to walk from, to walk on. So although John was the natural voice in the desert crying, what sent John into the wilderness wasn't John's own initiative. It was the Rima. It was the Word of God. It was God's Word which compelled John. In the same way, no one ever prepares. No one ever gets to know and come close to Jesus Christ unless God first acts by the power of the Holy Spirit to turn their hearts and make barren, rocky soil into good soil, ready to receive the Word of God. And why God must act first is because it's beyond the ability of any person to change someone else. What does the text say? It says every ravine will be filled and every mountain hill will be brought low. This isn't talking about superficial changes. It's talking about mountains being leveled and ravines being filled up where the immovable must be moved. And this is an operative work that only God can accomplish. In other words, deep-seated radical change. I'm sure you've met people who are stubborn, who are hard-headed, who are recalcitrant, who are carnal, who are worldly, where no matter what you say, they refuse to change. Amen. I agree with you because you will never change them. The world will never change them. Time isn't magic. Time will never change them. The only thing that can knock down those mountains of self-idolization, of the love of money, of the world of covetousness, of indifference or apathy, is God himself. Notice what Luke writes. He begins quoting Isaiah and says, Make ready the way of the Lord. And then he says, When you make ready the way of the Lord, then all flesh will see the salvation of God. Beloved, Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. But you never get to have Jesus as your Savior unless He's first your Lord. You make ready the way of the Lord, and then all flesh will see the salvation of God. If I knocked on your door at 3 a.m., and you said, who's that? And I said, it's Elijah Sadafel. And you said, okay, Elijah, you come in. Sadafel, you stay out. That can't happen. Because we're two and the same. You can't separate the two. Jesus is Lord and Savior. You can't have one without the other. So the only way that any person will see the salvation of God is when Jesus Christ is their Lord. And since all flesh can see God's salvation... Salvation is not just a concept. It's not an idea that you read about in the footnotes of your Bible. It's a person. So when Isaiah prophesies and says, all flesh will see the salvation of God, what he's alluding to is, all flesh will one day see Jesus Christ. Luke ends his quote by saying, all flesh will see the salvation of God. But here's the thing. God has eyes too. And the same Savior that people literally saw then is the same Savior that sees sinners today. No one escapes Christ's gaze. He sees into every human life. He sees into the condition of our hearts. He sees our sin. He sees most notably our desperate need for His grace. More specifically, he sees you where you are, and he sees all those things that inhibit your preparation to meet him. He sees your hidden idols, your selfishness, your secret desires. He sees what you do when no one else is 
looking. And you may think you're concealing something or keeping something back from Christ, but guess what? You can't surprise Jesus. You're not going to shock him. And here's the other thing. Your sin isn't special. Sin equals sin. And Jesus took all sin to the cross and finished it and paid the penalty forever. Jesus knowing the person that you would be saw everything that would happen and in full recognition of that and of that awareness took it to Golgotha and nailed it to the cross. The ultimate preparation for meeting Jesus is to realize that the person who prepares for him has already been sent by the Father. And all those whom God calls, he keeps. Therefore, preparation is never in vain because it is the result of God's operative work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the richness and depth of your word contained in the Gospel of Luke. And I know, O Lord, there are many who are with us here in person, but there are also many on all four corners of the earth who have heard your word today and have been shown, O Lord, that there is nothing inhibiting or blocking them from having a deep, intimate, and real relationship with the only true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, you are the only one who turns hearts. You are the only one who turns places where there is no soil, places where there is bad soil, into the good soil, suitable and acceptable to receive your word. So I pray, O Lord, that by your ordinary means of grace, you take these words, you deliver them, and to enact the disruptive, radical change that only you, O Lord, can effect. So men, so women, from people of all colors and creeds of all nations on this earth will hear your word, they will be turned by your word, and call upon the name of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Salvation truly is of the Lord and the Lord alone. And Lord Jesus, we yield before you, thanking you, loving you, and praise you. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.